Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> Bit more of a challenge to get here this morning, hey? The rain, like we've been wanting the rain, but it always makes the traffic a little worse, huh? Well, honestly, <laughs> I don't think it was the traffic that kept me here this morning. It was a literal interpretation of me of the spirit's willing, but the body is weak. But I'm here by the grace of God, and uh, amen for that. So, our passage today, is, our text today is going to be from Haggai chapter 2, we're starting, and we'll be going through verses 1 through 9. So when you're ready, when you reach there, please stand for the reading of the word. So let's go ahead and start with verse 1. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came, to, came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, just thank you once more for drawing us into this place where you've called us, Lord, to be the children of your kingdom and to be the messengers that, are, that you've sent forth. I pray, Lord, that as we read through your word today, that you just fill me, Lord, and fill us. Open our hearts. Uh, just that your word may be planted and it may be produce a crop for your kingdom, Lord, a hundredfold from what was planted. pray, Lord, that wherever we are, you just... Be with us, Lord, as we continue to fellowship here. And as long as, you call, long as you have a plan for us on this earth, may we follow faithfully according to what you have told us. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so the second chapter of Haggai. It's interesting, actually, because see, we're, this kind of like a little observation for historical context Haggai is actually one of three prophets in this time. He's speaking alongside the prophets, I think it says in Ezra, the prophets Zechariah and Malachi as well. And interestingly, God also raised up three different leaders for the people in this time. We see this is the time of Zerubbabel as the governor. We're also going to see later on the, the, the Levite Ezra is going to come. And after him, during his time, we'll see Nehemiah become the new governor. So each man... And he has come with his own time, with his own purpose, and with a different purpose, but they're all working under the same 
guiding hand. And God is going to use this to restore his people, maybe not as they were before, but to what he desires them to be. And that's encouraging, isn't it? That no matter, how, no matter what we've gone through, no matter what kind of quote-unquote hell, as the world would call it, we've been through, that God's heaven and his plans for us are always greater than anything the world will throw our way. And just thinking about that, how God works, that's part of what got me thinking about the main points for today. The, the, the three, and then so, the first one is that numbers do not limit or stop God from working. I mean, think about it. God took, how many people did it take for God to redeem the world? His son. Is God limited by numbers? Oh, they could say, like Satan, they say in the Revelation, he swept a third of the angels out of heaven with him when he rebelled, and yet, even if all the angels had been taken out of heaven by Satan, would God have been troubled? No. They're the, creator, they're the creations. He's the creator. It's like it says elsewhere in the Bible that, like, think that a creation that a servant is not greater than his master, and so a creation is not greater than its creator. That God remains almighty, all powerful, all knowing, no matter what we do down here. The second main point was that God's works are incomparable, even to each other. So incomparable, I meant incomparable, as they say in English. So, thinking about that, that God's works, you can never really compare one against the other, that each one is special in its own way. But also, in a sense, that they play out, they play out as I'll say later, that, they don't, that God is not limited by his works. That, that, that just because God did this one thing in the past does not mean that's the only thing he'll do. He can do anything he wants. That's part of him being all-powerful. And then, in addition to that, the third main point is that we can be confident that God's work will be accomplished down to the last detail. I mean, we saw with Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. Every prophecy about the Messiah coming to redeem the world, leading up to the cross, done. And every promise that we see in Revelation, what God has said will come to pass, that will be done as well. Nothing will be left out. It's like it says, the prophecy, the, the grass may wither, the flower fade, but the word of our God endures forever. And he keeps his word. And we are living testimony of that. So then, going into the book of Haggai, looking at the first verses, this is looking at, say, mm-hmm. ah, looking at when the word is coming to Haggai in the seventh month, the 21st of the month. This is during the time of Zerubbabel. So, oh yes, I forgot to, as in case you can't see behind me, the, 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 message for, the message title is Old Glory, New Glory, God's Glory. And I, thought, I was thinking about that as I was looking for a title, and like, well, people often look back to the past saying the, the glory of the past, oh, look, look how great things were, and so often we think, why can't things be like that now? Like, as if, like, it's like this, like when we go through the whole, there was a whole literary movement where basically look, people look back to the past with stories like Treasure Island, the Three Musketeers, say, wow, look how bright and colorful and great those things were. I mean, even, look at even at Star Wars. A long time ago, a galaxy far, far away, there was this great space adventure, and people were like, wow, why can't we live like that? But then people look at, 
things that are happening now, they think, wow, look at how simple, how, how quote, quote, primitive things were back then. Look at how much better it is now. And in a sense, we, in a sense, we're looking one way or the other, we lose sight of what really matters. Yes, there was glory in the past, there's glory in the future, but who does the glory belong to? And who is doing the work that brings glory? And that, I think, is where a lot of people get off track. They often, too often look at the world, they look at humanity, but they don't look to God. And that's something that Israel's having to relearn at this point, having been out of, I mean, look at what the history, Zerubbabel has come back with a, lot of, a whole bunch of the people, but they've been, how long have they been out of the Holy Land? That's right, Keeping. Seventy years. For, like, think about it. For, even for us, that's a whole literal lifetime. If there's, like, like I think then Daniel and his three friends were taken away in the first raid on Jerusalem, they were about in their teenagers, and Daniel lived to see the end of the exile, of the Babylonian captivity. He would have been a man in his 80s. And that's and a very, but a very, and even he was not the only survivor. There would have been a few more besides him who would journey back to Jerusalem and try to start again. But that's part of what we'll see here, that the older generation coming back will remember as the way things were. They would have remembered Solomon's temple, and then they see the, what's being built during Zerubbabel's time, and they would just say the two can't even compare. But interestingly enough, with Zerubbabel's time, I did a little research on this, during the time of Zerubbabel in the Persian Empire, there would have been about one million Jews in the Persian Empire at the time. Guess how many came back? Well, I was looking for a guess, but if you... That's <laughs> okay, so here's, here's, here's what's recorded in the Word. <laughs> so we see this, it actually comes back, Zerubbabel comes back as the governor, he's ruling over Judea under the Persians, and Ezra chapter 2, verse 64, gives us exact numbers. It says there were the returning exiles, in chapter 2, verse 64, there are 42,360 returning exiles, plus another 7,367 servants, and about 200 singers for the temple. Grand total, 49,972, about 73 short of 50,000. But keep in mind, that sounds like a lot, but remember, there were one million Jews. So if you do the math on that, oh yes, and there's also, you see later on in Ezra chapter 7 and 8, when he, Ezra comes, he brings another about 1,754, and then Nehemiah, he has an escort, but basically he's coming alone. So out of those calculations, with all those numbers, out of the one million Jews, about four to five out of every 100 decided to come back. The other 94 to 96%, they decided to stay right where they were. And that's why we sit, he talks about the, in the, in the verses, when he talks to the remnant of the people, they really were, they were a tiny fraction of the Jews who decided to return to their ancestral homeland. So the question is, why did so few come back? Well, there's some theories on that. Like for some like Daniel, actually said, like I said, were in their 80s. I mean, would, it, would they have been able to travel at that age? Could they go far? Even if it was only a journey of a few months? 
I mean, think of the terrain along the way. You got, you got deserts, mountains, inhospitable plains. Is that a very, very friendly place for the elderly? Hmm. And even so, that they have a difficult journey. Even if the Persians are ruling, there's still going to be bandits on the road, wild animal attacks. I mean, keep in mind, this is a time when the Persians still used, were using lions as capital punishment. I mean, the lions of the Middle East were feared and revered. Hunting them was like considered the sport of kings because nobody else was brave enough to take them on. I mean, think about Samson. He literally was attacked by a lion, and he, he, God, thanks to God's grace, he tore it apart. But there were people, there were, it could have easily been the other way if God hadn't been with him. Then we see, ah, of course, the big one, material comfort. Like, you have, like I've got, I'm wealthy, I'm comfortable, I'm, I'm very prosperous where I am. Why should I pull up stakes and leave everything? I can hear that God saying, oh, you mean like Abraham did? <laughs> and then the other big one is, of course, those who just were not following God. They said, your God commanded me to go. Why should I go? I'm not following him. I'm comfortable worshiping whatever God I please. But these faithful few, with Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, chose to follow God's call and come back. And thank God they did, because if they hadn't, well, there would have been no temple for, to, for the curtain to be torn when Jesus was dying on the cross. Ah. And going back to the main point of that numbers don't, don't limit God, Let's keep in mind, this is not the first time that God's faced this difficulty. Or this, we, we look at it as a difficulty. For God, nothing's impossible. But think about how God, how God has worked through few people time and time again. I mean, I didn't include this in my notes, but look at, look at Noah. He had one man with three sons and maybe how many, how many workmen build an ark. And those, six peop those eight people... The four men and four women were all the human population that were faithful, and God saved them and the world beyond. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is uh, in First Samuel chapter fourteen, verse six. This is when the time of the kings, when Saul is the Saul's the king at this time, and they're fighting against the Philistines, but most of the Israelites are not able to come out in battle. They're just so afraid they're hiding in caves. Of course, they're, they can say that materials are against them. After all, it says elsewhere in that chapter previously that all, of all of Israel, the only people who have iron weapons are Saul and his son Jonathan. Everybody else stuck with bronze. And if you've seen, if you've seen, if you've seen brass or bronze versus iron, no contest. That's what gives the Philistines such an edge. They got it in abundance. And yet, God turns to, looks for a faithful person to go fight the Philistines just like David and Goliath and what do you know David's future friend Jonathan is the one who goes so in 14 Jonathan's first king first Samuel 14 we see Jonathan calls for his armor bearer to go with him to go face the Philistines he says in verse 6 then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor come let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And in the chapter, as they go over, the Philistines are like, Hey, look, the Israelites are crawling out of their holes. Why don't you come up here and we'll show you something. 
And those two men go up against 20 Philistines. Who wins? The two. Same thing happened earlier in the, remember in the, when they were spying out the Holy Land? When they saw the 12 spies came back? How many were, like how many said there was a good land, but they were too strong, but the people were too strong to take it? Who many said, like how many said, we can take this land, God's on our side. Who ended up living to see the Holy Land? Exactly, those two who were faithful. And they, they were the only, not just those spies, they're also the only ones of their generation who got to see it. Okay. The same thing happened later on, we see with, uh, ah, with, with later on in the time of the judges, we see Gideon. He originally had, I think the judges says, he had 32,000 soldiers. How many did God whittle it down to? 300. And who won against these hordes of Midianites? The 300 who stood with God. And again, in the book of Kings, we see in like 1 Kings chapter 17, how many prophets of God stand against the 450 prophets of Baal? Who wins? The one who stood with God. And even into the time of the church, as I pointed out, that God saved the world through one person. How many people did God use to turn an upside-down world right side up? Twelve, the apostles. So, it's, I've seen that time and time again. This, what's the saying about, ah, yes, God's on our side as long as we are on his side. So like Jonathan said, doesn't matter how many are standing with you, if you're with God, that's it. So then we see, going through the book, going to the book here, ah, as a parallel to what's happening in Haggai, God is speaking of encouragement to them, but he's also speaking to the generations, both the old and the new, who are building the second temple. We see this in flipping over to Ezra chapter 3, what's happening in this portion. Let's see, there's Ezra chapter 3. Okay, starting in from chapter 3, looking at this of Zerubbabel and his and the people with him are building the temple. We see in chapter 3, starting in verses, verse 10, going to the end of the chapter, verse 13. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. In my personal studies, I was thinking about that, and I was, said, what do you know? Like the shouting? shouting we call it the raising of your voice to praise God? Sounds a lot like what happened at Jericho. In fact, that's... 
That's something that in the seven Hebrew words for praise, the fourth one is called Shabak, literally meaning the shout. As Carmen said in his song, it's praise that's given way before the answer comes about. A public testimony that drowns out all the noise of whiners and complainers as the saints all lift their voice. But interestingly, seeing how that, how that idea of the older generation seeing, remembering Solomon's temple, I mean, why would they be just so discouraged about this new temple being, being built? Well, sometimes, like people talk about it, what was, the, what was the phrase they use referring to the past? Exactly. The good old days. I mean, think about the, what happened with the first temple. I mean, Solomon built, threw all, everything he had into the temple, built over to like, so what, 10, 12 years at least? Yeah, he's put, and he, and he had all the resources, all the gold, silver, all these, all those spoils of war that, he, that his father David had brought into the works. Whereas the second temple, basically, they were starting off with, well, whatever money they could get on hand. I mean, the Persians had given them some support, but it was nothing compared to what Solomon had on hand. I mean, the people still look back at Solomon as the, the literally, the, the politically, and I'd say, some would say bureaucracy and wealth. That was the pinnacle of, Israelites, of Israelite influence. And yet, we see that God's, gonna, God's done many great things through Israel, and well, maybe none of them had the money that Solomon had, but can we truly say that they, they were not as great? I mean, think about what happened with Moses. I mean, God started off with him as a shepherd from the desert, and yet God did, did something through him. He helped bring, him, bring the people out of slavery. He made them into a nation. Can David or Solomon say that they did that? Yeah, they probably thought in their own lifetime, gee, look what Moses had to go through. That, that's I, what I'm going through. That's nothing. At least I'm in the promised land. That's where Moses never got to set foot. Mm. But we see, interestingly enough, that's we see where the older generation is looking back at the gold glories. Remember, this is like the Solomon's like, temple is like the most glorious thing they ever saw. It was a like gold, great, great white stone, lots of bronze, lavishly decorated. And then they probably thought Zerubbabel's temple is a... Well, a pittance, I think, basically. But in the sense that the temple is actually going to be refurbished and expanded, I think, during the time of Herod the Edomian, sometimes called Herod the Great. And yet Jesus said, this temple? Mm-mm. Like, I'll make an even greater temple in three days. And that temple is, of course, our hearts, where God will dwell with each one of us, not just in some house of stone. Hmm. Yes, well, the fathers may have wept. Well, over the loss of the first temple, we can see that there actually are there are others, many others who shout for joy. And why? Well, in a sense, because they see the prophecies of God coming to pass. Not just the return from exile, but something else. You see this referred to in the fathers referred to before in the time before the exile in Jeremiah chapter thirty. During the time when Israel was before the, Israel was about to go into it's captivity, but we see God has given a promise to them before that happens. I mean, we saw before that God had been speaking to Haggai, referring to the promise that had been the, the release from Egypt, from Moses, but we're seeing in Jeremiah, there's an older promise he's giving. In Jeremiah chapter 30, starting in verse 18, Thus says the Lord, 
Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built on its own mound, and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving, and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them, and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as before, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Does that ring a bell? Where have we heard that before in Scripture? This idea of multiplying children and being established before God. Well, if memory serves, sorry, you were saying something? Okay, so your memory serves. You've heard this back in Genesis when God was speaking to Abraham that his son, that his children would be greater in number than the stars in the sky, and that quote the idea of it as Isaac passed it on to Jacob: "Cursed are all who curse you, and blessed are all who bless you." So this return from exile—that's another—that's a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy that this that God's promise to Abraham is going to be kept no matter how. No matter how few came back, God was going to multiply them. And Israel has continued to multiply in the, in the intervening centuries since. No matter how many times they have tried, the world has tried to wipe them out, the Jews have endured and multiplied. God has been faithful to Israel. His promises are coming to pass. Let me see. Ah, referring to, we saw in, let's see, Okay. Ah, so in verse 5 of, Hag- of Haggai, chapter 2, we saw this. is according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. This is, touches on another older prophet, one who had been who had been a hundred or so years before Jeremiah, perhaps. We see this in the, prophet, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43. Turning over there. So for, chapter 43, verses... 16 to 19. Ah, and again, there's going to be imagery in the Exodus and also the promise of a new work. Starting verse 16 of 40, Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power, they shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Where have we heard that before? I mean, has God made a path through the waters before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Red sea. Oh, <coughs> yes, the Red Sea, and remember, in the Jordan River, for the, we saw the old generation pass through the sea, and the new generation after they after the old one died, the new generation passed through the Jordan River, on dry land, which should not have happened, especially with the river at flood season. But you also see down here. Ah, the idea of the, 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 you see the imagery of ch- the Pharaoh's chariots being extinguished in the sea, almost like a, like a being drowned, like a fire being drowned out by water. 
Interesting, he says, do not consider the former things, nor consider the things of old. The, the, the Keating's talked about it many times. Don't look to the past. Don't look at the old victories. And it's like, that's like, in a sense, what Jesus said about old wine and new wineskins. It's not just about your conversion process. It's about making sure your heart is malleable before God, that it's open for him to do a new work. Don't just look at, it's like the, Jesus says, those who drink new wine after drinking old wine says, eh, the old one was better. That limits God. I mean, God himself is not limited by anything, but he will not move where there's unbelief. We've seen that many times, that God's a gentleman. He won't move in your life if you don't ask him to. And that's interesting to me, as I was thinking about this, the idea of a new work versus old works, got me thinking of how C.S. Lewis wrote this into Prince Caspian, when Lucy sees Aslan and she asks, how come you didn't... How come you didn't come, 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 come? I'm the only one who could see before. How come you didn't just come roaring in and pounce our enemies like you did when the White Witch was here? He says, quote, Things never happen the same way twice. The same word that he comes here. You expect me to do things the way I did in the old days? No. I want to work something new that's unique to you, unique to this time. It's in a sense that idea of expecting God to do things the same way. That's literally like the old imagery of putting God into a box. But if you do that, is it really, are you really, are you really trusting in God anymore? Or is it more about you trying to direct God and say, this is what, this is what needs to happen? That's like using the imagery of a, of a hockey game. It's like the puck trying to tell the player, here's how I want you to shoot me. I'm sure my dad and brother would love that one. So this idea that, yes, that God is going to do a new work, and he's going to, and he's, he's encouraging them, saying, quote, don't, be strong, Zerubbabel, be strong, Jehozadak. I'm going to bring forth a new thing. My spirit is with you. I'm going to work. So we go into the third point. Oh, bless you. So we go into the third point. This is where we see a little more historical context. Remember, in the time, the time of Jesus, we saw a group called the Samaritans. Well, for reference sake, where did the Samaritans come from? Yeah, well, yes, you're, you're right, Samaria. Yeah, it just, just kind of goes back. In, so, a little, so a little history lesson thrown in here. So after Solomon's time, God divided the kingdom because at the end of his life, Solomon was unfaithful. He started worshiping other gods because, well, say, well, he literally, quote, slept around. Yeah, well, yeah, he had like a thousand women in his harem, and he basically worshipped, he worshipped, worshipped the gods of women who he had married, who came from nations that God commanded him, do not intermarry with them. And that's why God divided the kingdom, because Solomon was unfaithful. Solomon was left with, like Solomon's heir was left with a remnant, basically half the nation, while the other half went north and followed their own king. However, that king, Jerob, like Jeroboam, the first, ended up leading Israel into... Uh, well, into a, a deep idolatry. If you first started off with repeating the sin of Sinai with two golden calves, one in the north, one in the south, so that they wouldn't have to go up to Jerusalem and maybe think about swaying back to, to Solomon. And on the other way, they also got into the, some of the deep idolatry of, of, of Canaan itself. I mean, that's what we saw in, in Elijah's time. We saw, we saw Baal, Asherah, and, and even Molech, the God of child sacrifice, a God of fire being worshipped at the time. 
And that's where we see that passes even to the southern kingdom after one of Ahab and Jezebel's daughters marries into the royal family. She was, her name was Athaliah, and she ended up killing off all of her grandchildren except one to take the throne for herself. In fact, throughout the whole kingdom, it says describes that every king from Jeroboam the first through the very last king before the, the before the exile, that not one of them, not one of nineteen kings, was faithful to God. They were either half-hearted or completely wicked. And those wicked kings were the vast majority. And so that's why we see God, because of that deep idolatry and rebellion against God, that is why God allowed the ten northern tribes to be scattered by the, by the military state of Assyria. The Assyrians had a practice of taking people from one part of their empire and moving them away to another part. Why? Well, because your identity was tied to the land. So if they but if they pluck you up out of your native land and move you to somewhere else, they control your identity. We saw the same thing with Babylon when they tried to give Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah all Babylonian names, get them to eat Babylonian food, wear Babylonian clothing. The, the conquering culture was supposed to be followed. That was tradition. But thankfully, God's not... We see God has used tradition, but he's not bound by it. So where was I? Oh, yes, the Samaritans. So, so there were some survivors, both in the land of Israel itself and those who fled south into Judah. But those who stayed in the north, the Assyrians took people from Israel, moved them into Mesopotamia. They took people from Mesopotamia and moved them into Israel. And those people who moved here intermarried with the Jews. And because of the northern, northern capital of Samaria, where the wicked kings had ruled, those, these, these mixed people of both Gentile and Jewish ancestry became the Samaritans. And we see in Ezra's time, in this time of when the temple's being built, that is when this conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans begins. And that, all the way, and that continued all the way into the time of Jesus, where we see that where the Jews would actually travel around Samaria rather than go through it, because they hated them worse than the Gentiles. They say, quote, you're not even... Like, quote, you're even worse, like, you're not even, you're not even non-Jewish, you're somehow some lukewarm mix of the Jews, and you're actually mixing, like, idol, like idol worship with God's worship. And that's why they, both in culture and in religion, they just completely separated themselves from each other. But here is where we see in Ezra chapter, chapters 3, and, 3 through 5, and also in Nehemiah chapters 4 and 6, that is when we see the Samaritans coming in. And they try to say, hey, you're rebuilding the temple of God? Great, let us help you. They said, are you kidding me? We're the ones who were called by God to build the temple. You get out of here. But that ended up bringing a lot of opposition to the temple. In fact, that's where we see after the foundations laid, the Haggai is coming in after years have gone by and the temple's not been built. Partially that's because of what we saw happening among the Jews when they were paying attention to their own affairs, but that was, that was the latter portion. The earlier portion was when the Samaritans, quote-unquote, tattled on the Jews to the Persians, saying, they actually told a half-truth. They're coming to rebuild this, they're coming to rebuild this temple, they're coming to rebuild the wall. But they, the Samaritans lied, saying, they're doing so to rebel against the king of Persia. And so that's why, after these 
false words are entered in the Persians', Persians ears, they put a stop to the temple for a while. And that's why we see that Haggai is coming in to encourage them to keep working despite the, the opposition from their neighbors and the, and the word coming in from the government, don't do this. <laughs> but later on, we see that through, in Nehemiah's time, that the temple comes, in, that the word of truth comes out under the time of Darius the king. It's like either Darius the second or Darius the Mede, as we know him. And that comes in, and the truth comes out. The king of Persia says to the Samaritans, "Excuse me, here's what's really happening. I found the proof that Cyrus gave them permission to go build this temple. So, you leave them alone. In fact, why don't you send them supplies to help them build the temple? Let them build, and don't trouble them anymore." And that's where we see the work of God is accomplished despite the opposition. In fact, in fact, said in Ezra, they say, according to sources, the temple, it got stalled in the first part, but the temple was completed in Ezra chapter 6 after 23 years. So while, yes, while there were a few years that the, that the work got stalled, the work got started again, and God made it happen. In, you can remember, maybe some of the older generation didn't get to live to see it completed, but they saw the beginning, and God brought it to fruition. In fact, this is where we see, ah, the, and then we see in, in Nehemiah's time, when they're trying to rebuild the wall, how long does that take? Well, according to Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, 52 days, less than two months. And, and the people, and the Samaritans who saw this happening, they knew that, quote, they, they, they were looking at us afraid because they knew God had, that God had made the work fruitful. That God had helped the Jews, and they were afraid because if God's standing with them and we tried to stop them, uh-oh. So then going, jumping back to, ah, but as I said, this promise that we see with the Jews does not necessarily end with Nehemiah or Ezra, does it? No. According to, like looking at what we see in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 19, is going to be our next passage. Ah, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Yes, that's a promise that we'll see partially fulfilled in the time of Zerubbabel. We'll see it fulfilled again, literally, for Jerusalem in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But this promise will still carry on and ultimately be fulfilled, as we saw read in Revelation chapter 21 which we'll touch on in a little bit. So yes, he will, you know, God's not predictable. He'll accomplish his work in his way. He'll accomplish the work in his way and in his time. It's like they said, like a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. Mm-hmm. So the, the, I remember how, how Keith Green would put it in one of his songs. I can't wait to get to heaven. It says, quote, in six days he created everything and he's been working on heaven 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. So imagine what that'll be like. And when God brings heaven to earth with the new Jerusalem. So that's what we see. Now there's Re- Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, at the very end. 
This is after Satan has been bound, after he's been released, and after the judgment has come on earth, the final judgment. You see, the new heaven and new earth created is fulfilled as foretold in Isaiah. We see in verse 4 of chapter 21, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, there's been a lot of debate about what that means, like what the God, that the old things will not come to mind. A lot of people think, well, that, does that mean we won't remember anything about earth? We won't remember anything before the restoration? But honestly, I think there's a, at least two different ways to look at it. One, when you've got everything that's, like everything that's before you in the new heaven and new earth, why would you want to think about, why would you want to think about what happened before? I mean, think about like, this, old, this world full of pain and sorrow and destruction and chaos, and you've got a perfect world. Why would you want to think about that when you've got all this? The other part of it is that, ah, I think I think you think of it as uh, something that C.S. Lewis wrote into the last battle at the very end. It says, quote, The term is over. The holiday is begun. The dream is ended. It is the morning. And the, 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 seven, the friends of Narnia realized that that the thing, everything they've seen, that they saw in the whole seven books of Narnia, is just the title page and the prologue of the great story. And that, in another way of putting it, is like the Seven Sleepers series from, uh, I forget the author off the top of my head, but the Seven Sleepers series, it's a Christian fictional series that says, at the very end, what happened in these, what happened before, is just the training. Now the work can begin. In fact, even Walt Disney wrote this into one of his Tall Tale heroes with Johnny Appleseed. Johnny spends some 40 years on earth planting apple seeds, apple trees, and growing fruit. And, God, and the angel says, we need you, we need you yonder in, the, in heaven, Johnny. If you think you have almost all we please, but we're kind of short on apple trees. And the look on John's face is shock and surprise, giving way to joy, realizing that God is giving him so much more land and so much more time to do just what he loves. He's like, before he was like, I can't go. He's like, what are we waiting for? So think about that, that, we are, that God is now restoring his creation. He has removed all the flaws of the fall. If they, they, think, they say, if we do remember the former times, it'll be just as a dim memory that the thing that were before and now here is what is and will be forever. Encouraging, isn't it? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for what you've shown us through your word, Lord. I pray that it would take root in our hearts, Lord, that it would just be planted and watered by your word, and that you would bring forth a crop and harvest that would be glorifying to you, Lord. Let us remember, Lord, that no matter what has what happened with the old glory or new glory, that it is your glory, God, and that you bless us by allowing us to share it with you, that you've called us as not only children of God, but you've also called us as fellow heirs in Christ, and that we have an inheritance in you, Lord. Pray, Lord, that as we continue to be faithful to your purpose, Lord, that you would just continue to, to Lord, reach out to the world through us, that reach out to the lost, that we would just show your light, Lord, that we may be beacons that shine with your glory and that your hands may reach out through us and that the lost would reach out and take it 
so that they are no longer drowning, but they are safe and secure in you, Lord. Pray, Lord, that we would see revival in the land in these last days before you come again. Pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.